Hello and welcome to another edition of Spotlight, the Star Trek podcast where we view the franchise for a non-Trekkie lens. Today we're here for another one of our special interview episodes. I'm joined as usual by my co-hosts... Matt Brothers, hi. And... And Paul Wilson. And today we're going to talk to James L. Conway. Uh, James is a television and film director who you may know most for directing episodes of The Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, and Enterprise. In fact, in our Enterprise episode, all of the episodes we talked about, The Broken Bow, Two-Part Pilot, and Damage, the episode that Greg Locke chose for us to talk about, were all directed by James. Uh, He's had a hell of a career, and it's going to be amazing to chat to him all about it. We'd just like to thank Roger Lay Jr., a previous guest on the show, who actually helped set this interview up for us. So thank you, Roger, because it was a real pleasure to chat to James. Really interesting conversation, wasn't it, guys? I mean, absolutely. Like One of my favourite episodes that I've watched the show so far is Duet from Season 1 of Deep Space Nine, and James is behind that, so it was a real real pleasure to get to chat to, uh, chat to him about that one. I think as well, just when I saw his lineup of what he'd done for the show from Next Generation, the ones of Deep Space Nine that I went and had a look at, they, they really jumped out. I mean, I could actually picture specific shots from these episodes, so mm. it's really great to have such a visionary director. Uh, you know, from the show, had to talk about his work and you know, and his career as a whole. So it's been a terrific chat. Hope you enjoy it. And on with the interview. So one thing I wanted to ask you, James, is because as I said to you, I did have a listen um, to the other podcast you did recently on Trek FM. Yes. Yeah, and I noticed on that uh, you were saying you were actually a big Star Trek fan before you actually came to work on the franchise. You said you used to watch it in your frat house, is that right? <laughs> That's right. Um, I watched it originally when it was first on, and then when I was in college, it was in reruns, and every afternoon they ran it in Denver. I, was, I went to University of Denver. So uh, we would all go down into the basement, uh, and I think it was on at like 3 or 4 or 5 o'clock, I can't remember, and we all watched the show uh, every day, Monday through Friday. That sounds like the best viewing party. <laughs> that was amazing. <laughs> it, was, it was great because it was a frat house, so it was a, a nice big room with lots of couches and beer. Is it exactly how we picture American frat houses from movies? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, we were, I, I was about to say, I, I assume all these American college movies have been lying to us then, James. And, you know, they all depict these riotous parties and really you're just sitting around watching Star Trek. Is that right? Uh, that's exactly what it was. All of those movies are real and true. <laughs> <laughs> and if, you, if it wasn't, you were in the wrong fraternity. Certainly it was a lot of... Uh, Alcohol and other sources of recreation at the same time. Oh, actually, I'm sure. I'm sure they made those episodes even better. Oh, well, yeah, very deep in your appreciation of like some far out conceptual sci-fi. Yeah. <laughs> what I wanted to ask was uh, how you actually became involved in Star Trek in the first place, uh, Jane. Um, I was directing for Paramount Studios a show called MacGyver. Right. And um, that year, the studio made a deal with me to direct six episodes for the studio. Three episodes of or four episodes of MacGyver and two episodes of this new show they were going to do, the reboot of Star Trek: The Next Generation. Then asked what I'd be interested in doing, and I said, "Hell yes!" <laughs> so uh, it was the very first year I did episode. It was either eight or nine. I can't remember which one um, it was. And uh, so I was in there from the very beginning. I saw the pilot. I met everybody. Read all the scripts leading up to there. And you know, at first I was wondering, is this going to work or not? It was so different than the original Star Trek. It had no names in it as actors, um, and it was going to be syndicated, so it wasn't even on a network. 
it was a big gamble that Paramount took. They spent a lot of money on it, and no one had really ever syndicated a TV show before like that off network. Um, and I really liked all the different people. I got to meet uh, Roddenberry, and that was really cool, and work with him on the first uh, the first year. Um, and the scripts were good. They were they were. They were still trying to find their direction that first year, I think. I don't think the show really hit its stride till the year three. But um, all the basic elements were there. You know, you had the ship. We had a transporter. We had the mission to go and, and, and uh, not interfere with other people's cultures and to discover and explore. And I really loved the cast. That cast just sort of melded from the very beginning and got along really great. And they're still all friends today. It's quite remarkable. I would say, actually, you know, your episode that you first did, Justice, is one of the ones that really kind of puts the Prime Directive, like, to the test. So, you know, as a Star Trek fan, you know, actually the, your first outing was dealing with some of the core Star Trek principles. So it must have been quite interesting to get straight into it like that. It was. And even then, you know, the, Roddenberry was very much against any interpersonal conflict among the characters and against big action sequences. He really didn't want to do that. And the show didn't really hit its stride until those things were introduced later on in the, in the in the running of the show. So that first year, it was very hard to find scripts that were compelling, I think. They were all being rewritten at the last minute, uh, just as was. And then I did the, la- the season finale that year, and that show, there was a writer's strike going on. So I was getting rewrites all the time, and they weren't really being done by the writing staff. They were being done by other people or maybe at the direction of the writing staff that I wasn't aware of. <laughs> yes. so, there was a lot of rewriting going on during that first season of, uh, of Enterprise. But it was, you know, even, or excuse me, Next Generation. But in spite of that, it was still, you know, fun stuff. Yeah. Um, so I've always heard that he didn't want conflict in it, James, but he didn't even want any action? That some action, but it was very low on his list. It was, you know, right. it was very simple kind of action. So I bring it down. Uh, very minimal stuff. Had your fandom kind of carried on after kind of watching it in the frat house? Like, were you a fan of the movies before going into direct TNG? I did see all the movies. I like the later ones better than the earlier ones. It's like the first couple were sort of it's, um, not quite as good as the later ones. The one, that, the one that Nimoy directed, his first one he directed was fantastic. Um, and a couple of the others I thought were really, really good. But none of them had the same... Um, effect on me as the original series did. There's something about a television series where you get get it every week. You get involved in the personal stories um, on a on a ongoing basis, and that's why you know the, the whole idea of water cooler stuff happened with television. Is everyone as a as a community would sit and watch a, an episode at night, gather at work the next day, and talk about it. And the effect of that is is sort of magical, and it unites everybody. The big downfall, I think, with binging is you don't get to do that. Everyone is watching series at a different time, and you really can talk about it, but never, you know, they're not watching the same episode at the same time, and that's always a little off-putting. When they did the new Star Trek, it's not binging. It was once a week, so people still could do that to some degree. But a lot of the Netflix stuff, which is fabulous uh, entertainment, but everyone's watching it on their own time, so you don't really have those moments to, where you can all sit around and talk about it. It's very diluted, isn't it? There is, you know, the 90s benefited from the fact that there was only so many, you know, maybe under 10 top shows that people would be talking about. So there was always that crossover that you could you could definitely, everybody's seen at least one thing that you've seen. Right. Right. Now, there are so many shows on, and I think I'm, I know what to watch, but people still bring up shows I never, never heard of that I have to write down and go check out. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, there's so many shows coming in from Europe and from South America 
as well as from uh, America, and they're really, really good. So it, it's, it's a delight, delightful time to be watching TV. And like you say, it feels like you have to have watched the entire season before you start chatting about it. It's like when people say, have you seen so-and-so, they mean, have you seen all of it? So, yeah, it's definitely hard to keep up. <laughs> As you say, don't, don't say anything, don't say anything else. <laughs> yeah, you end up getting stabbed if you drop a spoiler these days. Uh, <laughs> That's right. what, are the, what are the big shows you're really liking right now, James? Um, let's see. Well, I love Game of Thrones. Obviously, that's that's a huge show for me. Um, I've watched. Uh, I liked Ozark very much. Oh yeah. Yeah. I like. Have you seen Ozark? It's very yeah. good. Um, I tried watching Lost in Space, and I haven't. I, I gave up in the middle of the first episode. I'll have to give it another shot. Have you guys watched that? Oh, I've been meaning. It's on my list. I've been. I've been on the fence, but I've seen it's got a season two order, so I might give it a try. But ooh, maybe not. Yeah, my wife's enjoying it. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I haven't watched it yet. Like you said, James, I mean, now there's so much uh, around. You kind of really have to kind of choose your time carefully. Yeah, choose your battles, isn't it, really? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, essentially, you are making a commitment, aren't you, to a show now that you have to kind of see it. Everything's written in, like, long form, almost. It's like a televisual novel. Everything's, like, 10, 12 episodes. And, you know, you can't really get it after three or four. And I mm. think... You know, since The Wire, you know, people have got used to the fact that people have to stick with something. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is true. And it puts a lot of pressure on the filmmakers because you know that this better be good for all 10 or 12 episodes or people are going to start quitting on you halfway through and tell people they're quitting on you halfway through. So it's, it's very hard to make a compelling show that lasts 12 episodes a season. Um, yeah. I, do, I do a show called The Magicians, which I think they do a fantastic job on, 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 on doing that show. Each episode is packed with plot. And um, it's you know each season is is just tons of story, great characters. If you've seen the show, I highly recommend you checking it out. Um, and and I was very disappointed. I'm, I'm trying to watch uh, the second season of Handmaid's Tale, and it, the first season I loved. The first the first couple episodes were a little slow, and this last episode, number three, really felt slow to me. You know, sometimes you feel like the writers don't know what to do next, and I felt that in that episode. Okay, so back to episodic television of the 1980s uh, with TNG. Um, you were obviously a big fan of Before You Went In. I mean, how did that feel? Because that must have been one really one of the first occurrences of previous big fans of a franchise coming in um, after being fans to actually make it. And was that a really big deal to you, did it feel like? Yes, it did. It, it felt to be part of something so special and to have it be Star Trek and the fact that I was going to be doing two of them that season felt really special to me. Usually, you know, there's a currency in, 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 for directors in terms of what show you're doing and, and, and how, quote-unquote, sexy it's, it's perceived. And frankly, Star Trek wasn't perceived as sexy at all. It was syndicated. The first couple of years it was dismissed as like a, a, a kid's side fiction show, and the actors still talk about that, tease about that. Um, nobody knew it was going to be successful or not. I didn't give it that because I was doing Star Trek, and I loved that about it. So, um, and to this day, I, I much prefer doing science fiction and, sh uh, and shows like that. I don't care who sees them necessarily as much as how good is the script and how in interested am I in the franchise that, that they're doing. So when I was going to get to do uh, Star Trek, I just thought this was fantastic. And at first, it didn't really have a lot of uh, uh, currency in terms of, of perceived as sexy in the business. It never won a, uh, an Emmy for... Um, for best programming, nobody was ever directed for directing for best director. It won a ton of Emmys for sound work and for some for wardrobe and visual effects, but it was never taken seriously as artistic as a lot of other series were and are. 
Um, and that's too bad because the work being done on Star Trek uh, Next Generation and, and Deep Space Nine early on was fantastic work. You know, the directors were really pushing the envelope again and again, and we were leading the way in visual effects. Uh, in those days, the early days of visual effects, you had blue screen, you had to nail the tripod into the ground, you had to have a special uh, shutter for, for the visual effects. Think about how that was then versus now where you can practically shoot them on your iPhone. But of course you did have some very sexy costumes in your first episode that you directed, James. That was, yes, they did. That was really funny. Uh, I, I love it. <laughs> in fact, I went to my one and only Star Trek convention about three years ago, and I'm walking in, and there were about 15 people dressed from um, that episode. <laughs> so guys, I love that about it. What yeah, a sight that must have been. <laughs> yeah. You wouldn't know where yeah. to look. <laughs> um, but after that, obviously, you mentioned that you directed the Neutral Zone, the season finale of season one. But quite a few years later, you came back for Frame of Mind. Um, yes. I watched recently. And, you know, I've got to say, it seems like because just to explain, uh, James, like with our podcast, the whole point of it is that the three of us weren't massive Trekkies or anything before we started the podcast. So it was the idea of kind of viewing something that this has this massive fan base from a kind of outsider perspective. So certainly Matt and I are kind of watching a lot of these episodes for the first ever time. So I've been watching a lot of season one of TNG, but because I knew we were getting interview yourself, I let forward to watch Frame of Mind. And the difference is staggering in terms of the way the show looks visually it's far darker more moodier more cinematic it, it really feels like you're able to come in and kind of put your authorship on it yes that was one thing i really appreciated in doing all of the uh, star treks is you, as a director as long as you told the story well and you've got the notes that they were they, they really cared about visually they let you go to do whatever you wanted and we tried a lot of different things so Frame of Mind really lent itself to being a very different, much darker version of Star Trek. And um, I had a lot of fun with the camera on that um, in telling that story. And I'd been away. It, it, it's, it's funny. I, I'm also a writer and a producer. And I, I, after the first season of uh, Next Generation, eight year, in 88, I went off to do my own uh, show for a number of years. Um, and when I, if it was done, I called Rick Berman to say, you know, I'm done and available. If you're interested, I'd love to come back and do the show. And I, he had me booked and I was there like a month later. So... Uh, he and I hit it off in the beginning, and Rick was responsible for me coming back again and again and again. And we're still friends. We had lunch uh, last week. I mean, I've got to say, I watched Frame of Mind when it first went out, and it stuck with me all these years. I didn't even feel like I needed to rewatch because I, I have such memories of like the um, almost the breaking of the camera, almost you know where you know, Riker's pushing through, like to sort of break out of the psychosis that he's in it's um it was a really striking episode i agree with Liam that it just it's so night and day different from what we had on season one yeah and the, the, the cast had really come together they, they once they started doing in season three i think it was where they did the borg episode and and the show became just a much better show in every regard the interpersonal stuff the action the 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 the, the, the arcing storylines um it became a little bit darker uh it was still a very bright feeling to the show but not nearly as bright as it was those first couple of years. In fact, it's funny when uh, I did an episode of um, Orville last year and Seth MacFarlane wanted it to look like Next Generation and Voyager. He wanted that big, bright, glossy Star Trek look. He didn't want anything dark, anything moody at all, because that's what he remembers and what he loved about Star Trek. You know, DS9 was just the opposite. It was dark. It was 
um, uh, lots of shadows, darker stories, same thing with Enterprise. But Next Gen and Voyager were these big, bright, optimistic feeling and big sets, glossy kind of lighting, uh, slick tabletops, slick chairs. It, it was just that whole overall feeling. Was that weird coming on to direct uh, the Orville, which is sort of like a parody homage to Star Trek at the end of the day? I mean, it, obviously you coming on to direct it, do you feel like he pursued yourself because of the fact that you were one of the most significant directors from the Star Trek TV shows? Yeah, that's why I was there. Uh, Brandon Braga was also one of the showrunners with Seth, and he, of course, was the, the executive producer of Voyager and uh, Enterprise and DS9, and you know he was Rick's partner for many years. And so they reached out to me to direct episode two of the show. And um, uh, Marvin Rush, who was the DP for many years on all the different Star Trek shows, I did the Enterprise pilot. Marvin was my DP on that. He came on to be the DP for Orville. So he and I sort of fashioned the show uh, on stage. It was, the pilot was, had been made. Um, but this was now a new crew to shoot the actual series, so we put it up on its feet. And it's because of my past Star Trek experience that they hired me. Cool, cool. You were mentioning DS9 having a far darker feel, um, so I feel we could definitely talk about Duet, uh, which you directed uh, for Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Uh, we're all big fans of that episode. Uh, yeah, I am too, and it's funny because while making it, I thought it was going to be a disaster. The... Um, the actor, uh, who's, who was the guest star, had to come in for makeup at four in the morning, for four hours of makeup every day, and by the time he got to the set, he was exhausted, and by the second day of shooting, he couldn't remember any of his dialogue. And if you remember, we had those long, long scenes with just he and Nana that would go on for pages. And it got to the point where we had to line feed him every single line. He would, uh, he would say the line, and then the next line, the script supervisor would say it, then he would say it, she'd cue him again, then he would say it. I mean, it was... One of those things where I didn't know until I got it in the editing room if it was going to cut together. I mean, that's that's, an, that's amazing to me because watching that episode and that performance especially, you'd have, you'd have no idea that that was kind of cobbled together that way. I mean, which is such a testament to, to both you and him. It's just amazing. That's right. He, he's, he was a wonderful, wonderful actor. Um, and then there was a lot of behind-the-scenes drama because he wanted to change the ending. He didn't like mm. the fact that his character died. He thought his character should live. And he was really fighting for the fact that his character should live. He made a big stink about it to the point where I was called into Rick, uh, Rick and uh, Michael Pillar's uh, office. And they said, you go down and tell him we're shooting the script and we just want that want to hear anything more about it. And uh, which I told him. And then he was fine. He, he, he got it and he behaved himself. And uh, I didn't know how good it was until I got into the editing room and I saw the first cut and I went, holy shit. <laughs> Harris knew that clearly he, he he had a sense of what he was performing perhaps before he even saw the edit like there was something there yeah he's, he's a wonderful actor and a wonderful guy um, it is one of those things when I first read the script I was very excited because it was almost like a film school script you know it had this this twist bad ending very dark had a lot of uh, emotional scenes to get when they just would sit there and talk that's not mm. typical Star Trek I knew it was challenging but I really kind of embraced it. And I looked at each scene as a different thing. I shot each one slightly differently. I loved that so much. And then when I saw the episode put come together, and this is where words matter. You know, the, the, the scenes were written so well. The, 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 uh, the, the uh, story, what they were talking about, the themes were so strong that when it's together, it's just wonderful. It's just real drama, and it worked beautifully. 
It's amazing because it, it, I watched it a second time literally a few hours ago on the way down here and it just really blew me away of just how much of a confident episode it is from beginning to begin to end and me being the least kind of savvy in what Trek was I was like wow I didn't know Trek could do this you know I didn't think it could be this this real and harken I mean I knew it was kind of all parables for a lot of things but it kind of really boils down a lot of issues and just anchored between those two performances I mean how was it for you coming on to this show because this was your first episode for DS9 wasn't it coming on to that with such a performance heavy episode and having getting to do all that great stuff with Nana and uh, and the guest star it was a thrill um, you know it, it was DS9 was the new baby and this is the one that uh, they really wanted to work and uh, so when I went over to do it, I read the script. I was thrilled. It was such a good script. And I, I had never worked with Nana before. And she is such a good actress. And that whole cast was really fine, fine actors. Um, so for me, it was a delight in every way. And what I liked about DS9, I did a number of them. Uh, one of my favorites was uh, um, Little Green Men. Because oh, yeah. one of the feature films I did many years ago, a low-budget movie called Hangar 18, was sort of telling the story of Hangar 18. And Little Green Men was telling a story from the Star Trek point of view of, of <laughs> Antina. They, was, they were the aliens that were, came down to Earth. And it was a very funny show. It had a lot of humor in it. And I love that about it. The other thing about DS9 is you could have a very, very serious show, then you could have a really funny show. And I think you almost uh, kind of responsible for introducing a bit of that element to it because I understand that you had a bit of a, a thing with the producers to sort of say, you know, were, they were a bit unsure that the the show could handle this humour. Right. Yeah, they, they, they hadn't done a lot of humour and they said, it's hard to do humour. I said, I know, I've done a lot. It'll, it's going to be great. And uh, the actors were hysterical. They were just, they could, they could handle it and that's what made it work. Yeah, I think it's it very reminiscent of like uh, the X Files of kind of that era where you'd have a, a you know switch to like you know a, a conspiracy episode, you know the regular program, but then there'd be the one off, which would just be play a bit more light, and you could really have fun with the characters. Yeah, those are always fun to be able to get involved in doing. Then I also like the alternate universe ones. I did the one for uh, DS Nine, which was a lot of fun, and the one on Enterprise was fantastic. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but suddenly all of these Enterprise people become these evil conniving people plotting against each other murdering each other and uh the actors love doing that and it was yeah really they, they, they look like they're having a ball yeah it's uh it, it's really a lot of fun yeah i watched little green men today actually jane for the first time and i've got to say it was an absolute delight it's so funny and those those three guys who played the frengi armin shimanon and the uh, other two just also gifted comedic actors it's, it's just really good fun the, uh, the, the the takeaway on Armin was he was sort of like Rick in um, Maltese Falcon in, uh, in, in Casablanca that's sort of who he was that, when, we, when we would talk about it and the other thing that Michael Pillow liked is he wanted the, that, to talk really fast you know how in the, uh, in the movies in the 30s and the early 40s uh, everybody talks so fast and he wanted that to be the, the pacing and the talking for the Ferengi especially in that episode and the other ones I did. So I just kept saying, faster, faster, faster. <laughs> and uh, they can respond. Armin was great that way. Um, so, of course, you almost directed the pilot of Voyager, um, but that didn't happen in the end, but you did come back and direct a bunch of episodes in season two, including uh, Death Wish with John Delancey. Um, and you seem to have built up quite a relationship with him as an actor because he's in that you did the Borg video game and he's in another TV show you directed as well, isn't he? Is it Legend? Yes. I love John. Q was my favorite Star Trek character, completely, without a doubt. 
um, because he could do anything. I mean, what a character. And he could do it with such a sense of humor, and he was so smart and so erudite. Um, and he, John, as a personality, is all of those things, too. The only thing you do is, is can't control time the way Q did. But he's a wonderful guy, charming, um, uh, a great rock on tour, and very talented. So I had a lot of fun with him. And, yeah, we did the, the Borg video game. And then a legend I did, which was a Michael Piller show. And uh, John was a regular on that. And we had a great deal of time. I love John. I haven't had the chance to work, work with him in many years, but I would cherish the chance to do it again. And I think that they ought to do if they're smart on uh, on um, uh, discovery. Uh, on discovery is bring that character in. <laughs> oh yeah, no, I mean that w- that would be fun. I mean it, it is funny that you mentioned Q because watching it uh, myself, I've got to say. For me, I think Delancey makes that character. Like, if I, I can't imagine another actor in that role. I think he's the one who makes that character really work. I agree. The, uh, characters like that have existed before, but unless they're cast perfectly, they come off as silly or over the top. And that was one of the things you always had to be careful for in Star Trek, especially with the, the, the uh, all the different aliens, is not to be over the top. And what we often did is that we would cast Shakespearean actors for those roles, they had they, they had an easier time talking through all the makeup, um, and because uh, you didn't want it to be phony and over the top. And John, the same thing. He was a good, authentic actor who could pull off that kind of flamboyant character without it being silly. Yeah, Star Trek is a you know great track history of having like lots of omnipotent sort of godlike creatures, isn't it? And there always are you know such great sort of stuff for the guest actor of the week to get their teeth into. But for having doing such a recurring role, it was I was was such a miss that he never was in any of the films uh, for the next generation. You know, it's it's a shame because he felt as much a part of that show as any of the regulars. I'm surprised they didn't use him more than they did uh, because he was such a a good character. I have to ask Rick about that why they didn't because he was by far. The most popular, and uh, everybody, everybody on set loved working with him. So it wasn't like there was any personality issue. But that character should have been used much more, I think. Hell, these days they would have spun him off into his own series. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the, Q, the Q universe uh, origins. Um, but yeah, we we were mentioning about how the fact that you were offered the pilot to Voyager, and I believe the series finale of TNG as well, um, James. But you, I think there were scheduling conflicts; you couldn't direct them. Um, right. But also, you almost came to direct First Contact. Is that right? Yes. Um, when I was doing DS Nine, Rick came to me and said, "We've got this new script, and uh, would you read it? And, and if you, I'd like to, you know, push for you to, to be able to direct it." And I read it, and the script is unbelievable. Uh, it was just a perfect Star Trek, tons of action, lots of levels, and, and, and visual effects. It was great. By far, I thought the best TNG feature that had been written. So we went through a long process uh, where. Rick uh, uh, talked talk to uh, the studio, and they signed off for me. Sherry Lansing said, okay. But then Patrick had to sign off, and Patrick had director approval. Now, unfortunately, I'd only worked with Patrick uh, on the, you know a couple of the first season, and that one episode briefly um, when I went back to season five. So he didn't really know me that well. In the meantime, um, uh, Jonathan Frakes had been directing Star Trek, doing a great job, and this was at that time... Practically Patrick's best friend, so it really came down to Patrick choosing between Jonathan and I, and of course he chose Jonathan. Mm-hmm. Now it's funny because if I had not been, if I had been available and able to do the Star Trek the season finale, the, the series finale for DS for uh, for Next Generation, all of it might have been different. But I wasn't, I didn't, so 
didn't happen. I mean, it's interesting uh, that you say about First Contact, Jim, because I've got to say, to be honest with you, it is my favourite of the films, like, overall. Um, so I'd be really interested in regards to if you, uh, uh, after watching the movie, if you have, like, an idea of what you would have done differently, like an alternative vision of the film, or you kind of, you watch it and you think, yeah, I, I would have done a similar thing? Um... When I watched it, I, it, it was hard to tell because some of my favorite scenes in, in the script I read were not in there. Right. So it was slightly different script. I, I hadn't broken it down like I do. When I, when I direct a script, I break it down shot by shot. I spend hours prepping a show before I shoot it. So I, visual, I actually see the movie in my head before I shoot it. But I hadn't done that yet with the, that script. So luckily, I, it wasn't really an issue. I watched it. I thought Jonathan did a great job. I thought it was a great movie and what it should have been. So... Um, there wasn't any sort of uh, buyer's remorse when I saw it. I enjoyed it for what it was, and I had moved on by then. But you kind of, you know, uh, had the big project come up with the Enterprise pilot, didn't you? Which was at the time like the the, the biggest budgeted sort of TV pilot ever made. So did that feel like prepping for a feature when you did the Broken Bow pilot? It did because it was a two hours, so we had a thirty-two day shooting schedule, which is almost like a small feature, and I had uh, two and a half months to prepare it. Um, at the time, I was working at uh, Spelling Television. I was executive vice president. And uh, again, Rick called to offer me a pilot. And um, luckily, we're owned, uh, Spelling was owned by Paramount. So I went to Aaron and Duke and said, look, I've been offered this pilot. Would you let me out of my contract to do it? So they suspended my contract. I went and did the pilot for six months and then came back to my job at, uh, at Spelling. Um, and it was like a feature. It was gigantic, fantastic script. Big, I think it was a $12 million budget way back then. Um, and it was a great experience in every way. And the, the top off of the experience was when it was all done, we did a cast and crew screening in the big, big theater at Paramount, the Sherry Lansing Theater. And they had it up on the big screen with, you know, Dolby surround sound. And there was a second screening room somewhere else. And I'm sitting in the middle of the theater with my family watching this thing. That was a great thrill. Um I heard another interview with you, James, where you talked about actually having quite an impact on the show's visual look and working with the director of photography and that you watched a lot of films as research, but you didn't actually go into what those films were. I'd be really interested to hear what were the films that really influenced the look of the show. Um, Hunt for Red October was one. It was submarine shows. We were looking for shows um, that where you had the story being told in cramped quarters. We wanted... Enterprise to be a much more cramped feeling than we had in uh, Next Generation or uh, Voyager. And so, if, I don't know if you noticed, but even in um, the main uh, office, the captain's office, there's a place he always has to duck under when he's in there to, to walk around. So we, we, a lot of it came from the, 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 the lighting that comes out of having to be in a closed, cramped set. A lot of, um, not one big overall lighting, but it was a lot of individual lights that, that would light up the specific parts of the set. So it was a whole different lighting scheme than the other shows had been. Um, and that sort of carried it through. So it was a much more moodier, edgier show. And if you remember in the pilot, we had a whole sequence that was just lit with the, the um, flashlights when the power goes off in the ship and they're chasing this one creature that's crawling on the walls. And the only lights that's used, the only light we actually used to film it was just the flashlights that they had on their, on their weapons. Yeah, it's a very effective um, scene. And as you say, 
that show definitely had a darker kind of lighting scheme than the other Star Trek shows up to that point. Funnily enough, as Matt mentioned, what we've been doing is going through uh, the shows, getting a guest on who's a big fan of that show, and they've actually picked an episode for us to watch to kind of show us that oh, this show is really worth watching alongside the pilot. And we just did Enterprise, and our guest, Greg Locke, on that episode actually chose Damage uh, which you directed as well and that's a really obviously the lighting on that because of the fact that the the ship has kind of gone down sort of thing like you know the, the lights aren't working properly is really moodily kind of lit right yeah um, Marvin really embraced that kind of work he was uh, he, he's a very inventive uh, cinematographer and uh, quite, a, quite a, a pleasure to work with and Jonathan West who shot uh, Deep Space Nine when I was there, used very little light. Uh, I used to call him the Prince of Darkness. And I I don't know if you've been on a a movie set, TV set lately, but now that we're shooting digital, um, the ASA, or the ISO as it's called, is is 800, which is, there's a lot, there's very little light needed. And so usually the darkest place on the soundstage now is the actual set you're shooting on. Um, It's quite remarkable how, how little light we use. In the old days, you had so much more light. I think in the next generation, they said that, you know, there was very little you could do with the lighting on the bridge set, for example, because, you know, every time you had to reset the lights, if you wanted to go moodier, it would it would take time. And I understand that show was done at such a pace that you couldn't you, to keep the amount of sets you could do in a day. You had to keep the lighting consistent. Uh, yeah, you always have to keep the lighting consistent. That was sort of the look of that show on the bridge, at least. Um, but that show was shot in seven days. And even in the years of Enterprise, they tried to do every fourth show in eight days, but usually three of the others would be seven days. Now, most shows are shot eight days or nine days, or eight days with the second unit. Um, they're spending a lot more money in TV shows now than they used to. For example, the new Discovery, they spent $8 million an episode, and when I was doing Star Trek, I think they were spending two or two and a half million an episode, so it's a huge amount of difference. Well, you really made the money go far on the Mirror Darkly episode, because I think that by the end, they had to, the, the last season was done on, on quite a restricted budget, but it, it didn't, didn't feel like the scope was any less on that no, one particularly. The, the, the one thing that, the, the, about those shows that made them less expensive is you never really went on location. Uh, one of the big expenses of, a sh- of, of shooting is when you take a company of 100 people and all the trucks and vehicles and move them to another location, rent a location, build everything out there and all that. Since Star Trek was generally um, always on stage, you save some money there. Um, they have to redo the, the sets all the time, but it, it's, it did definitely a big savings. Uh, I think on Next Generation, if they went out five times a year, it was a lot. Well, yeah, so, you were one of those days with Justice, weren't you? It was a day out for the crew. <laughs> I went out two days on Justice. And then when we did the Enterprise pilot, we were out more than we were in. That was such a, there were so many locations in that show that, that made it fun. In fact, I, ironically, when I did the Orville in an eight-day shooting schedule, I was out five of the eight days on that, too, because that was an episode I did had a lot of exteriors. Uh, just wanted to ask, James, being that you happen to work on four iterations of Star Trek, what was your favorite one to work on out of the four shows? Well, Enterprise, because I did the pilot. So the Enterprise pilot is my favorite. But my favorite show of all those shows was probably Deep Space Nine because of the variety that it had and because I did um, uh, Damage and Little Green Man. I think I did six or seven or something of them, all sort of different I spent, I spent, and I did the two-party, which introduced uh, Worf back into that show. So um, I, I like doing that show, but you know, it's the one I like, like the least is easier. I, I, I never, I only did you know a few episodes of Voyager, 
it was the one I had the least connection to. Um, so that was the, the one I had the least connection to. But I really liked DS9 and Enterprise and Next Gen almost equally. They were really just wonderful special shows. I guess you felt like you had some ownership over Enterprise because you directed the pilot and kind of, you know, as you say, kind of set that up. Uh, Very much so. You know, you're involved in all the casting. So uh, I was in every casting session and uh, you're there when they plot out the sets and pick the wardrobe and you, you do get that sense of ownership. And the first time you get to shoot the bridge and shoot it from all these different angles that sort of establish what the, the bridge is going to look like and the show is going to look like. So you absolutely have a sense of ownership of it, yeah. And that's and then the pride that it turned out so well. That's the other thing. Um, I really was happy with the results. And um, so it was a great experience in that regard. And also I was working with friends. I knew all these people from before. Many of the crew members I had known since Next Generation. There were people who were in the, in the Star Trek crews that were there for all 18 years. Um, and that was a, like almost their whole career was in that, in that one series of shows. And I knew them from the very, you know, next generation right through Enterprise. And that's a great feeling when you're going back to people you know and trust, people who are talented, people who know you. It's sort of like the bar and friends, right? It's, uh, <laughs> it's nice to go back to a place where you just walk in and feel comfortable. Were there any big uh, elements of Enterprise that, that you kind of had big influence over being able to come in from the first episode that kind of went throughout? Like, were you instrumental in any other direction of the show itself being in at that early stage? No, uh, the script was written by Rick and Brandon and uh, it was pretty specific. And, and they were, you know, they were showrunners with specific ideas about and also where the show was going. So my contributions more were in, in look, uh, style. Um, you, you sort of, the actors, the, the characters are established in the script but then they're sort of cemented in the, those first performances. And so that, that's always uh, is good when you get them on, uh, the character on their feet and you listen to it and you make some the suggestions and changes and you, get, you hone that character the way you want it. And then that lasts for you know, as many years as the show goes. So that's, that's always nice to have your fingerprint on that. Well, it's nice to kind of also, with, with this particular crew, you know, they're not all friends at the beginning but by the end of the pilot they're starting to kind of gel as a as a crew usually we come into these shows and they're already kind of you know sort of set up yes it is nice um also you know you know the drama behind who got what role and who didn't and how close they were to not getting it and also the notes you know there was some some, during the filming of the pilot the studio was giving notes on some of the actors and trying to improve this or improve that um, and you know that they had to like the people in the, in the pilot or they would replace them and we reshoot something. So we shoot the character. Hmm. So there's still pressure on the pilot to make sure that these people that you cast stay on the show. Were there any um, talks or discussions about what you might have done if it had gone on to it for a fifth season? Or, or did you know before that it was ending uh, when, when it ended? When I directed the penultimate episode, we knew it was not coming back. Right. Uh, and it's too bad because... The show had really found itself. The, the, the season four, I thought, was a fantastic season, and the show had, it would deserve deserved to come back. But it was a political decision more than anything else um, between uh, Les Moonves at CBS and Rick Berman, I believe. And I think Rick's talked about this. Um, so they wanted to make changes. Rick didn't want to make changes, and so the response from CBS was just to cancel the show. It it must have been interesting uh, directing Scott Bakula in Broken Bow and kind of crafting that character on set together, uh, being that obviously at that point he was coming in uh, actually already famous for another kind of big role on TV in Quantum Leap, which was a kind of 
not the case for previous kind of actors who played the captains. Um, was that kind of, you know, did you have a real like relationship in terms of crafting that character together on set? Uh, we did, but he came in with a very specific idea in mind, which was good. It, it was something that everybody liked. And so in terms of, of creating the, uh, that character, he had sort of read the script, thought about it, came in with, with something that really worked. And um, it was more just about uh, keeping him, you know, keeping it straight. So in terms of character-wise, I didn't need to worry about Scott at all. And he, uh, he, he's a wonderful actor. And there's a funny story that uh, we shot the first five days of, of dailies, of a film and the studio president was out of town and then caught up on the dailies and didn't like Scott's hair. So he said, change it. He wanted it to look like it did when they did um, the other show. And we had to go back, change his hairstyle. He, and he was not happy about this. Scott was not. Um, and, and reshoot his scenes for the first five days with the new hair. Uh, it, I mean, obviously, these are the most important things about filmmaking, isn't it? The actor's hair, of course. It's so silly, but it's what network executives will always uh, hang on to, or a piece of wardrobe or a certain hat. Um, there are horror stories about the networks being so controlling now that if you want to, especially on a pilot, if a character's going to walk on the set for the first time in a piece of wardrobe, you have to take a picture of them and send them to the network executive. If the network executive is not available to look at that picture, you've got to sit there and wait until they are. Uh, <laughs> this doesn't happen all the time, but it happens enough so that people talk about it. And it's, it's just nothing. It's frightening. Yeah. And it never used to be that way. It used to be they hire you to do a show, you go off and you do the show and you sort of give it in. They, they would have overall notes and simple stuff, but they weren't micromanaging like they are now. Well, it, now it's... <laughs> They expected, like, you know, things to kind of, like, the first season's a, you know, classic for, like, where things have started to change. You know, somebody's hair is different from episode two. And, you know, the shows usually find themselves by the end of the first year, but it's kind of like micro-adjustments, isn't it? I mean, it's odd to think of a, a shoe executive, like, going to that level of expense, isn't it, to just change one thing. But it's, uh, it's crazy. And I, I guess that they had... Uh Scott and the, the network president had talked about it, and Scott just did what he wanted anyway. So that sort of pissed the, you know, Carrie, Carrie McCluggage was the executive's name. Um, and he got, so Carrie ended up getting his way. How this character's going to look? Well, yeah, I once heard a horror story from Armando Iannucci, the creator of The Thick of It, about sitting in for a meeting on the American remake, and the entire meeting was about the color of the ties the characters should wear. Oh my god! <laughs> but it, clearly, from what you're saying, it sounds like that—that that is the, the real deal. deal. It, it can absolutely happen. There are, you know, I often say network executives are temporary people making permanent decisions. <laughs> sometimes they rise to that job undeservedly. Sometimes deservedly, undeservedly, and they're there for a year or two and get fired. But in that year or two, they're supervising twenty or thirty TV shows. And they're, you know, they're ruining them as much as they possibly can with their bad taste. Yeah. But it's just me, they just, everybody seems to want to leave their mark and say point to something that they had control over, for example. Is that kind of where it's coming from? I think so. And also, it's, it's because they're naive and they, they, they're thinking that the wrong things make a difference. Um, that they, by, by making this decision, they can say, well, I was going to pick that tie. Like anyone else would give a shit. Uh, <laughs> It's just, you know, it, they, they can't write, so they have to, you know, contribute to other things that, that, they, that, that they can. And it's, um, it's not always that way, but when it is, you know you've got your interest in trouble. 
Uh, James, I've heard you refer to the DS9 episode, The Way of the Warrior, as your audition tape um, for First Contact. So did you approach that as if you were kind of making a big-budget movie? I did. It was uh, it, it was a two-parter, and we, we shot it you know, as, as one in, in, interspersing the boards, but I only had the normal 14 days. I think I had 15 days to do the two episodes, which was like a seven-day and an eight-day. But it had all these big battle scenes, and I wanted to make them as dynamic and as impressive as I could. So I shot it knowing that I would be able to then take this piece of film and show Rick, and then Rick could show the studio that he can he could do the movie. So that was very much on my mind when I was shooting it, and I really reached to make it within the limits of the script and uh, the, 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 what we were shooting um, a nice audition to shoot for feature. i got to say, as a casual viewer of DS9, I was much more into Next Generation when I was a younger, but DS9 really grabbed my attention from that episode onwards, and I believe, you know, I, I remember the commercials for that one. There was a certain number of, you know, what we call trailer lines, you know, where, you know, Avery Brooks would be delivering something that, you know, let's, let's show them what we've got or something like that, all the upgrades we've had. And I think those things were shot with that in mind. It's like, this is a televisual event, and that really came across. Yeah, it was a big deal to bring, uh, to bring uh, Michael over and do that show. So, yeah, it was a big deal. We, we, we spent a lot of time and money and, and effort trying to make it as good as we could. So you talked earlier, Jim, about being at the frat house, watching Star Trek. Uh, so in terms of deciding to kind of get into filmmaking and directing, when did that come about? Was that in college or...? It was in college. I was studying film at the University of Denver. And my senior year, and I, I didn't know exactly what I was going to do. I knew I, I was writing at the time, too. So I knew I wanted to be a writer. I knew I wanted to be a director. Um, and my senior year, the phone rang, and I happened to be the one to pick it up in the mass communications office. And it was a local guy, Chuck Sellier, who was looking for cheap local labor for his industrial film and commercial house. And I, he wanted an editor. I said, well, I'm your guy. So I went to work for him while I was still in school. I'd go after school, and uh, after about three months, I said, you know, I could direct these commercials better than the guys you're hiring. I'm 20 years old. And he says, okay, and he gave me a shot, and he liked what I did. And um, I stayed with Chuck for about three years after that. And we made some uh, very good commercials there and got a lot of notice. Um, and then I, he started getting into animal movies, and I wasn't in that direction. I wanted more dramatic stuff. So I left him. This was 1973. And sometimes you, somebody comes into your life and you don't know it at the time, but they end up changing your life. And that was a thing here with Chuck because I left and about six months later, he had heard that these people were looking for someone to put together an ad campaign for a thriller movie, ironically starring William Shatner. It was called Imp. And it was at the nadir of Shatner's career before the Star Trek reboots and before uh, the cop show he did. And so I went and I, I worked on that project and just about the time I was finished with that, and I, I quit that job, I wrote up my first novel. And then the day I finished the first draft of the novel, Chuck calls. He's now <clears throat> having made this movie, Grizzly Adams, and he's got this company in L.A. And he says, I need you to come work with me. I'll fly you out and uh, come back. So I did. And we took the Grizzly Adams show and we went to NBC and sold it as a TV series. Uh, we shot in Park City, Utah, so we moved the company from L.A. to Park City. And while in Park City, uh, this company, Sun Classic, we were doing uh, feature films, four-wall feature films, like Grizzly Adams and um, In Search of Noah's Ark and In Search of Historic Jesus. And at the same time, we were doing 
the Grizzly Adams TV show, and we owned a, a comic book called Classics Illustrated. I don't know if you ever know, knew the yeah. it was illustrated comics, which, which were beautifully done comics with, of the classic stories. Well, we owned that imprint, and so to NBC, and we sold a series of 12 movies, Classic Illustrated Presents. We did The Time Machine, Last of the Mohicans, um, uh, Huckleberry Finn. Now, we're all in our early 20s. We don't know what we don't know. So we just went and said, okay, let's do it. We'll figure out a way to do it. Uh, we had two full-time crews. Literally all of us were in our 20s. And uh, we said, going to do the time machine. Okay, how do we do this? And then we, we, for Huckleberry Finn, we ended up going to Missouri to shoot that. And then we did Greatest Series of the Bible and went to, for nine months, we were down in uh, Page, Arizona, putting up these gigantic sets and flying in all these actors from Hollywood. And it was the greatest training ground possible because – we weren't in Hollywood. Nobody could tell us what we could or couldn't do. We we were running the company. I was I was head of production, and we were just making these making these shows and learning and growing. It was fantastic training ground. And uh, while doing that, we did we did a horror movie called The Boogans, and I flew to L.A. to, to uh, cast it. Met this actress. She came in. She we chatted. She read. She left. I turned to the associate producer and said I could marry that girl. It was Rebecca Balding who I've been married to for 37 years. The first oh, congratulations, week, sir. <laughs> the first week of shooting, we went out. That Saturday night, she proposed. Four weeks later, while still shooting, we got married, and she was living with a guy at the time. <laughs> Wait, I, she, she proposed on your first date? <laughs> uh, uh, she proposed on our third date. Wow. And she was still great. living with another guy? Yes, and it was all the same week. Now, I have to tell you, this was four weeks of alcohol-fueled four weeks <laughs> <laughs> when we weren't shooting, but somehow it worked. I mean, it's just Did remarkable. you go back and kick this guy out of the flat, did you? <laughs> no, he, what happened is he, she moved in with me after that weekend, and then he called the hotel to talk to her, and one of the hotel clerks said, oh, no, she's not here anymore. She moved in with the director. <laughs> <laughs> and married him. Whoa. <laughs> God, so, lots of more. That, yeah, that's how she found it. If you've ever seen the movie The Boogans, you should check it out. It's kind of fun. She's wonderful in it. Whoa. B -O the Boogans. B-O-O-G-E-N-S. Boogans. Yeah, I, I know the one you mean, uh, Jim, because obviously you've been researching yourself. I, I hear Stephen King's a big fan. Yeah, he, he he put out a nice review of it. If you look at it, we made it in 1982. So if you look at it through those binoculars, it's kind of fun. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd definitely be interested uh, to see it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I saw that King called it a wildly energetic monster movie. So, I mean, that was that, that's quite a stamp of approval at the time. Right. And, but see, even then, my sci-fi roots were there, because I did uh, that, which was a horror movie, and we did Hangar 18, which was sci-fi. And uh, so it, it, my, the, my love of, of science fiction and, and horror goes way back to then. Yes, yeah, so you've got your genre chops there. And I think, but you also from the, you know, doing the commercials and, and the, the sort of miniseries, you just got like such an overarching kind of like understanding of the whole process in terms of like show running, essentially, isn't it? So yeah. coming into a big like production like Star Trek, it would have been less overwhelming because you kind of go, well, I know what's, what would have happened prior to me arriving here. I kind of stand on part of the bigger machine. Yeah, and it's it's funny. I always knew that I could do whatever it is I had to do. Um, I always had this chutzpah. It's just like when I said at 20 years old to this guy, hey, I can direct better than these guys. I'd never directed anything except stuff at school, but I just said that, and I could. And it's it's funny that I never feel more comfortable. Like I said, I'm a writer, I'm a producer, but I'm also a director. But the thing I was born to do was direct. I'm never more comfortable than on a set as a director. 
what's it you enjoyed the most is it the is it like the technical aspects or was it working with the actors you know what really kind of you enjoy is it or everything um there's a couple things one uh i like conducting the orchestra of cast and crew um and i like making the music sound great but what, it's funny, I've written a lot of scripts, and if I write a script and someone else directs it versus me directing someone else's script, I feel a much bigger sense of ownership and authorship if I directed someone else's script than if someone directed my script. Because when you're the director, you're there for, for every, every camera setup, every lighting decision, every pause an actor takes, every line that is said, every mo- mo- moment. I mean, you are there... For, just creating this thing. It's like when you were a little kid playing with dolls on your bed, it's that except much, much bigger. And to me, that's what the joy of directing is, is that you're there for every one of those micro decisions. It's, it's just fantastic. And you've had the opportunity to go to the edit as well. I mean, I get that sense from the duet episode that you had, you know, you were directing right through to the edit room as well. Has that been the case in all of the shows you've done? Everything. Yeah. The director is always entitled to at least four days in the editing room after it's all assembled. And I usually take all the time there. To me, the real, I, I go in knowing exactly how I want the scenes to look. Things change on set sometimes, but the editor doesn't, isn't in my head. So when he puts the show together, he doesn't necessarily know what I had in mind. So I want to get make sure that the, the show the producers see is the exact show that I wanted. And I, I'm very particular about exactly how a show is cut and put together. So I love the editing process, and a lot of times you discover things. You know, sometimes I'll have, I'll think I want to see a scene a certain way, <clears throat> then I go see the edit, and the director, the editor's done it something different. I like I like what he's done, so I'll go with that. So I'm not like I'm not uh, my way, not the highway. I'm open to anything that works. Well, you always say like you know it's good to know that you've actually been able to shoot the coverage as well. I know that sometimes things are rushed, that things only kind of going to fit together a certain way. And there's stories I've read directors that you know do it that way. They want their edit they edited the way they've done it, so they really literally only shoot it one way. But you're you're able to kind of put you give yourself options. I take it. Well, you always want to give yourself options. It's to only to give nobody a choice is dumb and short-sighted because no matter how good you are and think you know a scene's going to be a play a, a line may change a line may may have to be added for something that happens later or before and if you don't have any coverage and you can't do it elegantly it's going to be done inelegantly so you want to make sure that you give yourself options and give the producers options you want the show to still look good and i think people who try to shoot so that people can't change anything well first of all they're going to stop getting invited back yeah um, uh, but they're, they're kidding themselves because nobody knows that much when you're on the set you need to see a show cut together to really understand what you've got I find it really interesting Jim you saying about preferring to direct someone else's script and feeling more ownership there rather than writing your own script and someone else taking directing is that because you feel like if you've written a script and another director comes along, he's essentially taking that away from you, and then it, it may become something else in his or her hands. Um, it's more, yes, but it's not that as much as um, when I write a script, I'm seeing the script, and it's never, if unless I'm directing it, it's never exactly how I saw it when I see it. Um, a line that I intended to be said a certain, a certain way isn't said that way, or, or, or the director misses a point, or... Uh, there's a lot of things that can get away. Even in a well-directed show, I still feel one step removed, even though I wrote it, than um, if I had directed it. And a lot of writers who don't direct 
never know that, never feel that. And they'll be very happy, you know, watching. And then it's a matter for them what directors they like most because certain directors work well with certain writers. Yeah, but me having directed so much, I'm very aware of, you know, the, the, the ownership feeling I get on set. So for me, it's that way. Yeah, they often say that film can be the, the director's medium and, and TV is often a writer's. Do you, do you feel the same sense of ownership over the TV you've directed? Is that coming, coming from you a lot? Well, the TV now is, I mean, it, it, absolutely, you're there as a director to deliver the executive producer's vision. You get a script, they tell you what's important in that script. Some, some of them have lists of you know, camera shots they do like or don't like. Um, hmm. Some shows do that, some shows don't. But if, you know, it, it's for, because the overall look of the show wants to be the same. For example, look at Mad Men. Every one of those shows looks the same, intentionally. They're all very old-fashioned, wide shot, couple of overs, no camera hardly ever moves. Um, and other shows, the camera's always handheld and zooming in and zooming out, episode to episode to episode. Those shows have a real visual signature so when you're hired, you're, you have to shoot that that way. <clears throat> they want you to shoot that way. I don't like doing shows like that because I want to be able to read a script and tell the story my own way within the framework of that show. Um, because to me, how I use the camera is the fun of directing. I love to be able to come up with great shots and, and fashion the visual show itself. Um, I've done a lot of shows where it doesn't really, cop shows, not so much, don't get so much fun. That's why I like doing science fiction. Um, but some shows let you go. Like I said, Star Trek, he never had any rules. Uh, just tell the story properly. You'd have a tone meeting, and he'd tell you what they want out of every scene. As long as you delivered that, um, there was no rules about how you shot it. That's great. That's great. Well, one project you must have felt a lot of ownership of was Bodies of Evidence, where I believe you directed the pilot with the creator, one of the producers, and of course that was a significant project for having George Clooney in one of the leads just as he was on the precipice of uh, fame. Uh, yeah, I always say I had the pleasure of working with George and uh, the show just before he became a big star. He's a great guy. Um, we had a great, a lot, of, a lot of fun together. And you sort of, the reason that George is a star is because of Les Moonves. Les Moonves is the president of, at the time he was president of Warner Brothers Television. Now he's president of CBS. And Les was convinced that one day George would be a star. So he put him under contract to Warner Brothers. And he forced us to use him in Bodies of Evidence. Um, not forced, we liked George once we, he introduced us to him. <laughs> oh God, not this guy. That, so we did two seasons of that show. And when it went down, Les put him in, um, sisters as a recurring for a year and then when that went down he forced George to go into ER. George didn't want to be in ER. He said he had such bad luck with series uh, he didn't want to be third, the third lead or whatever it was but Les got him in there and he became a big star and um, it's also funny if you look at early George his head used to bob a lot even in the first season of ER and then he got more confident and became a much better actor and now of course he's who he is but uh, his delight, I've seen him a couple of times since, just, you know, bumped into each other, and he's always warm, and, and uh, he's one of the great, great personalities in Hollywood. Oh, yeah, old bubblehead Clooney, that's what they call him. <laughs> <laughs> but he's, uh, it sounds like Les's faith in him paid off in the end. Yeah, and you know what's funny about George? Even back then, he had a, the circle of friends of about five, six guys that they would go around. Every year, they'd rent a, 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 a like a Winnebago, and hire someone to drive it and they would do a road trip to play golf 
during the night, the guy would drive them to the next location. They'd get out, they'd roll out, hung over, and go play golf, and then do it, go to another location. And then as he got wealthier, they started doing it in jets. <laughs> and then there was something in I read last year that George took this same group of guys and gave them all a million dollars. <laughs> all right. Oh, yeah, go on. We need a friend like George. At last, this friendship has paid off. <laughs> yeah, including um, including the money to pay the taxes on the million dollars. So it was a million dollars net. Oh, uh, and I'm not sure how many men it, people it was. Tax free. <laughs> I think it was at that time eight or nine. I, I don't remember the number, but I heard that story. I went, "Oh my god, that's so cool!" But that's that's George Clooney. He's just the nicest guy, um, and he, he always was. And it's, I'm so so happy that he's become, you know, become it's not only a good actor, but a wonderful writer, good director. <laughs> this is the case where good guys come out on top. <laughs> was it at this point that you found his number in your Rolodex again, uh, Jim? But it's like, hey, George, it's, it's great to hear hey, from you again. George, I, I, I didn't. I, I think you forgot one person on that. <laughs> yeah, this is the thing. You don't I play golf, wish I'd stay closer. To you him, wish you'd learn golf. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, um, but I mean, you've actually directed. I mean, as well as all the Star Trek shows, uh, Jim, you, you've directed a lot of kind of big cult shows, haven't you? Because you've done Smallville, Supernatural, Charmed. Yeah, Charmed. Well, that's that's a biggie, obviously, because you were a producer on that as well, and that was a massive show. Charmed was a, eight years, and uh, I was involved in the development of it when I was an executive at Spelling, and I was a producer director the last four or five years. But I directed in every year of it. And um, it was a, a, a fun show. I had a lot of drama early with Shannon Doherty, um, but we had a, a great time, good people. And I just read that CBS is on the CW is going to reboot it. It's not none of the same people. It's a whole new concept, but uh, Charmed is coming back. And you know that Charmed in the U.S. still plays twice a day on uh, one of the TV channels here, Lifetime, during the day. Very popular still. Wow. CW can't get enough of witches right now, can they? Like, they're absolutely lovely. Sabrina's coming back as well. That's right. They have a lot of the, a lot of the shows I worked on when I was at Spelling have come back again. Like, Nine or Two and O came back. Melrose came back. Dynasty is back. And it's funny how like Supernatural that just never stopped. And then Supernatural never stopped. That's right. <laughs> it's like, that's incredible. The show that that's... Uh, I was it, 12 years, 13 years? Or yeah, it's like, what, season 13, 14? I swear it's about to go into season 14. It's yeah, absolutely crazy. Uh, I mean, the, the, the fan base that that show has is... I mean, I think one of the episodes that you actually directed, Jim, was was about a, a convention, wasn't it? Or so it was actually about the fans. It was what, That's one of my favourite TV direct shows I ever directed. It was really a fun, fun show to do. And it was. It was, you know, very self-aware... Uh, about this fan thing. And these guys, they travel the country doing these conventions, making a fortune every year. And uh, the fan base is crazy. They just love the show. Oh, one thing Matt and I just wanted to ask you about and mention as well is uh, I couldn't help but notice that one of the actors in Charmed was Julian McMahon, who yeah. we're massive fans of as Christian Troy from the show Nip Tuck. Yes. Uh, and yeah, how was it working with him? Because that would have been before Nip Tuck, obviously. You kind of probably discovered him a bit. Uh, yeah, that's right. It was before Nip Tuck. He was a fantastic guy. Really got along with everybody very well. Um, we loved him. We loved working with him. He got along with Alyssa really well. Until at the end, um, when there was the trouble with Shannon and Alyssa, they, they were having big fights, which is what led to... 
Shannon leaving the show. Um, I, th- I, mean, if I remember right at the end, he may have started dating Shannon, and that really pissed Alyssa off. But uh, by then, I think his arc was over. That's <laughs> so Christian. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Like, I mean, he, it, always, it always did sound like uh, charmed like, when it was on, that there was a lot of drama going on on that set, to be fair. There was. There was always, of the three women, uh, there was always some drama between them. It's always sort of two against one for some reason or another. All lovely ladies, but uh, there was always a little bit more drama than we wanted. Oh, wow. Well, I mean, you know, the, the fact that you managed to keep it going for eight seasons amongst all of that, like, is quite an achievement then. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was a lot of fun. And, you know, I think they regretted taking us off after eight years. I think they would, they would like to have kept going. But we, we were ready to move on. And uh, eight years is a lot, long time for a TV show. So it was, it was really a, a great time. Could have done 14 seasons like Supernatural. Like, like, you know, guys, I, keep the I drama went, down. We could have gone on. I went from from that to Super to uh, Smallville, which I really like too. And now, have you seen all this press about um, Allison? Yeah, uh, we, we, I've actually been following that story uh, because I, I find it very interesting. You got any revelations about that, Jim? You know, no. I, I was very close to her while I was did. I did it years uh, two thousand six and two thousand seven, or two thousand seven, two thousand eight, and um, she was great. I was really good friends with her. She's a uh, Super actress, really friendly, smart. We would go to dinner with a bunch of people all the time. It was a very social group. Um, and I knew she was very into female empowerment. And according to something I'm reading right now, Hollywood Reporter has a cover story about this whole thing. And it started in 2006, it said. And I'm trying to remember if she ever mentioned him or it. And I don't remember that. But that's when this whole her introduction to this whole group started. So she was involved with this thing for like 10, 12 years. Uh, before they went off the deep end, so I, I'm I, I, I'm baffled that that she could have turned into what they say she has, and I'm curious to see how it ends up because Allison is one of the sweetest, nicest, most talented actors I ever worked with. Yeah, it says like caught a lot of people, even those closest to it, like by complete surprise. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it, you know, as I said, I've been following the story, and it, it is pretty crazy. I, you know, I have no doubt that she's a very um, sweet woman, but. I think it's one of those things where you, you've got a figure like the, the, this guy who's kind of running the cult and, you know, I mean, I've actually seen a video of her interviewing him, uh, the guy who runs the cult, and literally you, you look at her face and it, and it looks like she's brainwashed when, she, when yeah. she's speaking to him. It, it's really frightening. And he looks so creepy that you wonder, how could anybody follow this guy? I never get that. Yeah, well, no, I, I know what you mean, but I, I think with these things that they, you know, they get into people's heads, and, you know, and that, that's exactly it. Is it kind of a form of brainwashing, well, you, I think? You did Aquarius, actually, so you probably touched on some of that. Yes, well, I like, I, I remember, because I'm so freaking old, I remember when that happened, and uh, I was one of the few people in the crew who remembered that whole era, but to be able to do something that was set back in the 60s like that was really a lot of fun for me. Yeah, I bet working with uh, David Duchovny as well, who's yet another kind of big cult star. Yeah, I like David. He's a really good guy, really talented. Yeah, I bet he's a lot of fun. And obviously you said you directed quite a few episodes of Smallville as well. I mean, outside of Alison Mack and everything like that, were you a kind of a big fan of kind of the Superman mythos before you came in there? Absolutely. When I was a kid, I was a big comic book fan. Every Tuesday and Thursday, I'd go down to get my the comic books, and I went from the the DC phase as a you know ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen year old 
and where it was Superman, Superboy, Supergirl, Batman, Green Lantern. And then as I became a teenager, I went to Marvel and Spider-Man and the Avengers and all of those. And I loved them for years and years. So uh, I'm thrilled now that they're doing these incredible movies. Have you seen the Avengers? It's unbelievable. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. We love. Have you seen Infinity War yet? Yes, it blew me away. I, oh, I, I was, so I was sort of, like, so, sort of getting worrying. Can they keep doing these and making them fresh? And the the ending caught me by such surprise and delight to have it end that way that I was just uh, thought it was terrific. If you had your pick of uh, a new superhero, you know, movie for the MCU, what what one would you go in for? You mean new character? Yeah. yeah. If you had a pick of one to do, what? Uh, who, who's your unsung hero? Well, they pretty much done. Everyone, I <laughs> ones I never thought you could do, like Aquaman. I'm thinking, how can you do Aquaman well? I'm gonna be curious to see what they did. He was like, I never really liked him that much as a when I was as a comic when I was a kid. I, I, I do. I'm not happy with what they've done with the DC world because I think the Superman movies and the Batman movies have been very big disappointments. Um, but Marvel, the newer ones that are out yes. now, yeah, the newer ones out now. Uh, but Marvel is incredible in how they keep rebooting themselves and making the shows fresh and, and meaningful and the characters likable uh, it's quite an <laughs> astonishing thing uh, I didn't want to go see Thor because I felt that's my least favorite of those and then I saw it on an airplane flying to New Zealand and that was fantastic it was funny and smart and different and it was great I think there's and, a set for bringing in those unique directors don't they like, um, like James Gunn Titan Guardians of the Galaxy yeah yeah, that's very smart. And, but, you know, you have to have somebody at top who's overseeing this whole thing and not screwing it up. And they're doing a great job. Yeah, completely. I mean, when you were doing Smallville, was kind of, did you look back to the original, like, Superman films or anything like that as an influence? No. Um, that, that show had a very significant, uh, specific style. They wanted to have really dr- dramatic shots. Um, that would sort of write out of the pages of a comic book where someone's actually sort of sliding right at you. Camera never stopped moving. We, um, they wanted really, really tight close-ups. Um, uh, it was a really great place to work. The, the, the DPs were fantastic. They challenged you to make it tougher and harder on them as opposed to making it easier on them. I love 360s, which most DPs will throw you out the window if you tell them you want a 360. Um, so it was a great place to work because they really wanted good camera work and challenging camera work and push the actors to get the best performance. It was really fun, and Tom was it was Tom Welling as, as uh, Clark was a fantastic guy, good actor, and he set an example that uh, there was no acting out on that show because he's he was very workman about it. He just came to work, did his job, and left. And since he was a star, no one else could misbehave, and they didn't. You did film um, at college, and yes. you kind of you've talked about being born to be a director, so. What made you fall in love with film, and what made you think this is what I want to do in my life? I th- it was television. When I was a kid, uh, I'm reading a great book by uh, Michael Curtiz that just came out, uh, one of the great directors of the 30s and 40s. And um, when I was a kid, they used to run in New York City a million-dollar movie, and every day they would run the same movie and then twice on the weekends. So when I would see a movie like one of, of um, uh, Curtiz's movie was The Adventures of Robin Hood, with, um, uh, what's his name, Errol Flynn. Well, I watched that. When I would watch it, I would watch it 12 times a week. <laughs> I would watch Super... Um, um, I love. I fell in love with, with um, Frankenstein and Wolfman and The Mummy, and those were on 12 times a week when they would run them, and I would watch them again and again and again and again. And the same thing with Hunchback of Notre Dame and, 
and uh, all these different movies and watching them that in that repetitive, I started to think about how they were made and, and what was what went into it. And I became an addict watching these kinds of things. And I started watching TV all the time. And there was a TV show at the time called Burke's Law starring Gene Barry as this millionaire Beverly Hills detective who was suave and got all the girls and they had all these big guest stars. Well, when I was at Spelling, um, they rebooted Burke's Law. I wrote the pilot and did it for two seasons as a showrunner. And it was with Gene Barry again. And I'm thinking, this is amazing. That's something that I watched in the early 60s I'm now doing in the 90s, 30 years later. Uh, it was sort of like full circle for me in terms of what got me addicted to, to t storytelling. And it was watching TV. I was just, I would watch these shows again and again, and I knew that's what I wanted to be. And in fact, when I was 14, my parents, I was at one point living in Chicago, and my parents took me out to L.A., and we went on a tour of a soundstage, and they were shooting Gunsmoke. So we went, and the Gunsmoke street itself was actually inside a soundstage. Um, and I met some people and saw a stunt show, and I said, this is what I want to do. At 14, I said, this is what I want to do. It's amazing. Like, I think, I think that's coming around for our generation as well now. Like, I know a few people working in the film industry here, and, you know, we grew up on Star Wars and things like Jurassic Park, and they're working on Jurassic World and the new Star Wars. So getting to, like, work on the films that informed, like, their childhoods is, is an amazing opportunity. Yeah, and like with me and Star Trek, exactly. Mm. It's really something that's fantastic about this. And, and it, it just makes you that much more invested in what you're doing. Um, it's sort of like the dream come true. And I have to pitch myself even now. Uh, when you're on a set surrounded by people with a script you love and cast that's so talented and crew that's so talented to think, and I'm directing these people. I mean, how did this happen? I'm just this, this little eight-year-old from, uh, from Chicago. So uh, it's an amazing thing, uh, this business. You know, when you, when you get to do your dream, um, it's really special. Because you're still hard at it, aren't you, uh, Jim? I mean, I've heard you talk about being semi-retired before, but you seem to be just still going for it. Um, well, I'm only so far doing one show this year. Uh, I'll do more if the right show comes along. So I'm, I'm very serious about photography now, and I travel around doing a lot of photography for myself. Um, and I, you know, it's, so I am semi-retired. If the right show comes along, I'll, I'll, I'll go do it. But if not, I'm very happy to, uh, I'm a tennis player, I'm a golfer and I do photography and I've worked hard to get some, some time for myself and uh, I, I'm not embarrassed to take it when it comes along. Yeah. Give George a ring. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I've seen some of your photography online, mate. It's very nice. Um, and you've been, you write, writing novels. Are you still doing that? Uh, I wrote, I've written three novels, but I haven't. I'm not writing now. I'm using photography for my creative output. I may go back to the books at some point, but it was. I had these books in me. I wanted to write. It was great fun doing them, and I sort of go from passion to passion. An early passion was pool, and I started playing billiards and pool, and I, I got very good at it. And I went to pool school three times and practice every day. And there's still a pool table sitting in the middle of the house over there somewhere. Uh, but then I went from that to writing the books, and I went from the, doing the books to photography. So I, when I go into something, it's it's full bore, and uh, I sort of exclude everything else. This is for my pastimes, right, for my uh, hobbies. So now it's photography. We'll see how long that lasts, and who knows what's next. Crochet. Crochet. Wow. Okay, well, it's been, it's been great talking to you, James. And, yeah, no, I wish we could uh, talk longer, but, yeah, no, it's it's very late where we are and so it's, it's past our bedtime but no, I really thank you for giving us the time we really appreciate it and we hope you've enjoyed it I have uh, Liam and uh, Paul and uh, Matt thank you so much I really did enjoy it this has been great 
If you enjoyed this episode of Spotlight and wish to support us, you can rate, review and subscribe on iTunes, like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter at SpotlightPod. You can also get in touch and drop us a message directly by emailing spotlightpod at gmail.com.